Welcome to Plan B Security with your host, Mike McIntosh. So welcome to episode three. And uh, I don't want to get carried away with the facts, but just trying to spice it up a little bit. In this episode, I'm going to give it the name of Solutioning Through Scenarios. Now, if you've been in the security field for a while, you've probably already heard of things like threat modeling and risk modeling, which is also a concept which does apply to almost everyday life, right? You know, should I open the door? Should I make this right turn? Should I wait for this car to, you know, see if they slow down or if they're actually going to turn with their blinker? Um, things like that, you know, it, it really is a good way of really understanding the world around you or the, you know, technical solutions that you're actually trying to implement. And I like to believe that the more threat modeling or risk modeling that you do, the more confidence that you actually build because now there's less unknowns. And when you do encounter one of these scenarios, you already thought about it. You've already planned for it. You already know how you're going to respond. So the panic that sets in isn't around what do I do next? It's more about, you know, how fast can we get this remediated and turned back up, which is where you want your mind to be in one of those situations. So this is going to take a little bit more of like a free form approach where I'm not doing like a template driven risk model or threat model, but more around the actual implementation. So, you know, what, what's the thought process that goes into whether you're approving or rejecting some sort of design or solution or implementation or integration with any of the, the core data systems that you may see in your company. Um, and if you're not on the security or IT team or, you know, one of the risk teams and you're more of the end user, the employee here, understand, you know, you like take this as an opportunity to understand what your security team is actually thinking about when you're requesting something, because it's not just cut dry. It's not just, Hey, I need this to do my job. There's a lot more that goes into it. And hopefully that this kind of opens your eyes to that a little bit more. And before I get too far deep, I want to share some of my, like where, how my mind works here. So I started my career again, you know, at Verizon Wireless. I was very young, you know, still a teenager technically. And one of the things I did was, you know, I was a programmer. I absolutely loved programming. I was huge into PHP back in the days. Um, PHP and Ruby were my two primary languages. And while I started my career doing network support, I ended up volunteering to build the internet where we could do things like collect metrics for everybody's ticket handling times, understand, you know, trends within the ticket, look for ones that are maybe similar in type in the same location, or maybe it's affecting the same networking equipment that drives the backend. So then that way we can see if there's a larger outage. So why this matters is because it's around the same time that I started to transition to another team. I was able to take my network troubleshooting skills, my coding capabilities, and use that as I transitioned into what they called the data services engineering firewall infrastructure team. If you had a cell phone and it was connected to 3G or 4G on the Verizon network, it went through one of the firewalls my team was responsible for. Now I had a great manager and his name was Wes. And one of the first days I started reporting to him, he told me about the FCAPS model and it stands for fault, configuration, accountability, performance, and security. And traditionally it's used in more of the telecommunications network management model. But for me, you know, he taught me how to translate that into what it was that I was doing. And I, one of my first tasks was to automate the auditing and collection of artifacts from each one of the firewalls within the infrastructure so we could start continuous monitoring, which was not really a big thing at the time, of how many active sessions, how many available sessions, what capacity uh, was currently being consumed on a firewall. Did we have enough in case we had to do a failover? 
were they even configured correctly? And if one wasn't in use, did we have a way of detecting if a failover did need to occur, that it would occur with confidence? And what Wes told me at the time was just because the FCAPS model is built for these telecommunication networks and management, there's like five different layers of how this model actually gets applied. But like, how can you apply it to what you do every day? as a developer between monitoring, auditing, and automating the network. So I did exactly that. You know, I started sitting there thinking, okay, well, fault, fault tolerance. Do we have a backups? Do we have the configuration saved somewhere? So if a firewall went down, could we swap it out with the same configuration very quickly and, and spin that up and, and reduce the amount of downtime that we could experience? On the configuration side, you know, there's a lot of different network equipments, a lot of different routes at the time. How can we make sure that the configuration is exactly what it needs to? If we rotated a password and there was a hash in the configuration, how can we make sure that the password was updated across the entire infrastructure before we started doing something like um, rolling out Radius or, or Tachys? Again, on the configuration piece, how can we make sure that for that specific site that we are using the right VIP, which is the virtual IP? It was Think of it as like an automated failover uh, at the IP level. On the accounting side, okay, well, I, I moved away from accounting and turned it more towards accountability. How do we know who made what change at what time, when they made it, and how was it done? Do we know what the state was before they made the change? Do we know what the state was after they made the change? And then I started to twist it a little bit too, and okay, accountability goes into auditing. The A fits, I can use it. Performance was a big one. How do we make sure that we're doing it as performant as possible where we're able to get as much data off the host without impacting its stability. Because remember, these things are sitting there and they're processing a lot of data. The tool I also built needed to be performant itself. How do I get a lot of this data where, you know, we're, we're pulling thousands of lines of, you know, SNMP MIBs back from this hardware equipment. How do I process this in a way where, you know, I'm getting the fields exactly as I need to and returning it and turning it into a database, you know, for long-term storage so we could start doing trending over time. Before you knew it, you know, there were hundreds of millions of rows inside this database. And this was before, you know, a lot of the time series stuff was really available out there on the market. Um, so, you know, you had to come up with ways of making it perform it myself so other people can consume my tool. That was my real value. And then lastly, you know, the big thing is security. S always fits. The security always fit. And this is really where I started to not just transition into more of just a security thought. Um, you know, I love the red teaming stuff before this. You know, I did that as a teenager. Um, but like here is where I started to really understand how does security fit into a professional environment? And it's not just security of the traffic, but it's the security of my tool. People are accessing the security that my tool needs to uphold in order to access a lot of this stuff. And then also, you know, the security of the larger network that I'm trying to support and make sure my team can continue to support. And, and I'm just going to call them tenants, but I, like I took these FCAPS tenants and I've continued to use them and evolve them throughout my entire career. So no matter what job I'm in, what responsibilities I'm taking care of, how does it fit into this bigger FCAPS model? Because to me, it will always be applicable. So now you get some of the backstory. I hope you can kind of see how I apply this thought process into some of these other prompts that we'll be going through today. So let's get started. The prompt. A user wants to install a brand new Slack application into your corporate environment. Where do you start? 
Now, I took this one as uh, against the better judgment of myself because I know that there's some companies out there that are completely like, hey, free game in Slack. And if you've worked with me, you know, you know, I, I really dig deep down and, and have a really good understanding of how all this stuff works. So to me, you know, reviewing Slack and like getting into the, the each one of the little tiny details of which one of the applications, you know, what data does it have access to? What can it do on behalf of? And, and you know, what sort of the thought process of if you were the developer of this integration, what would you do with the data that you're requesting? That's immediately where my mind goes. The first thing I want to do is think of, okay, is there a vendor agreement in place and are we required to do vendor agreements? Certain regulations do require companies in order to have like a very fine grained third-party risk program. So if you're subjected to one of those, make sure that, you know, you're not just thinking this is an add-on that's provided by Slack. 99% of the time, it's actually provided by a third-party developer and it's just available through the marketplace. So you will have to onboard that third-party vendor into your program. That means signing your data processing agreements, making sure that you have your NDAs or, you know, your, your MSAs in place. And you might even have to check to see if they're SOC 1, SOC 2, or even ISO 27K1, depending on where you're from, make sure that they're certified in, in one of those to make sure that they're going to be handling your corporate data very carefully. Because think of this, Slack should always be seen as your most secure data source. This is where communications happen. And if there's some sort of litigation, the very first thing that's going to be, you know, entered into discovery is probably going to be communications. So keep that in mind. The next thing I'm going to start thinking about is, okay, what is this application trying to actually do? Are there going to be some sort of interactivity components of it? Are there going to be slash commands? Is it trying to get data out or put data in? So for example, if there's an application that's just using like the chat write scope, chat write public, chat write customized, or just chat write, it's just going to be generally putting information into Slack. That's not really that big of a deal. It could be disruptive if one of those tokens becomes compromised, then you'll have an attacker. And this is where you'll really see the attackers just start to like almost denial of service some channels. They become unusable because, you know, they're just inserting so much information and they're probably just hovering right around the rate limit. I've seen this happen in the past. And, you know, that channel then just either needs to get cut or, you know, you'll see that the tokens, you know, become invalidated uh, once you're able to respond to that accordingly. On the flip side, what about getting data out? Be really careful whenever you're looking at something that that's trying to use either the, the users read email uh, because that is considered PII. Um, so users read email and then uh, in combination with the ability for the bot to read all channel history for any channel that it gets added to. And if you want to take it one step further, make sure you're not granting that bot the ability for it to join channels by itself using like a channels managed scope. It is safe to say that you could probably divide your internally developed applications from the marketplace applications and put a little bit more trust on the internal ones. But at the same time, if somebody's not following the consistencies around your policies you put in place for, you know, uh, token API key or credential material sharing using like a HashiCorp vault or SSM within AWS or even the secret manager within GCP, you got to make sure that they're following those methods because if they take a token and they commit it to source code and then that's a public repo or they're putting into a gist somewhere on GitHub, that's where compromise is going to come from. And that's where your Slack environment gets compromised from. The other fun thing to do is, okay, for every one of these applications, expect that they'll get the most sensitive information as well. 
what would happen if this new integration had access to Slack and was able to pull out your VPN config, assuming that the VPN config was shared in some public channel somewhere, some new hire starting, they don't know how to get connected to the internet um, or the corporate uh, network using a VPN. Somebody copies their config off of their own laptop and shares it via the public channel. Expect this information to get shared. What would that threat model look like for you? The other thing to think about is, do you expand thumbnails and do you allow public URLs to be written for files that get uploaded? By default, it looks like it does get enabled. So you want to make sure that you have somebody that's, you know, monitoring some of these channels for some of the files that are getting added because maybe you have an incident channel and an incident channel, somebody's like, okay, well, here's a CSV of everybody that's affected. Well, if that becomes a public URL and then you have some bot out there listening to the channel, that public URL in the event that actual conversation log gets leaked, the data will be leaked as well through the file available through the log. So think of this inception and what could happen if each one of the little tiny pieces starts to add up perfectly for some of the attackers. Cause believe it, attackers thinking graphs, that's exactly what they're going to be trying to do. The other one to think about is impersonation. What happens if this Slack app or integration has the ability to impersonate somebody of authority or some sort of service where, you know, you're then able to fish or take action on something. Um, one red team engagement I've done in the past was imitating um, a internal security tool, which did some self-service functionality where you could have somebody, um, for example, they take action somewhere in the network. The Slack app would detect the, the behavior, send a Slack notification. Hey, was this really you? And they would click yes or no. And then that would be the end of it. But what if the attacker took it a step further using a compromise key, which could then use maybe the chat right customize scope and say, hey, I'm going to impersonate the security tool, send a link, they click it, goes to a phishing web page, you know, imitating the Okta login or the one login login. Now you just used a trusted communication method of Slack to fish somebody. You don't even need email anymore. Or while I don't actually have the data to support this, just through some, um, you know, ongoing conversations with some other folks, I definitely believe that this is going to start being one of the new attack vectors that we're going to see um, sprouting up pretty soon as a complement to the external um, conversations that can occur within Microsoft Teams where somebody from outside the organization can message somebody inside the organization without a um, review or an invitation or an approval. And then lastly on the Slack piece, to everybody who's requesting some of these third-party Slack apps, just remember your data and your company's data is the product for these other folks. So they are inclined to get as much information out of you as possible so they can take that information regardless of the privacy policy and use that to drive their own roadmap for their own product. And sometimes you don't want your company data being used in that sense. Sometimes you can opt out of it. Sometimes you can't. But please keep that in the back of your mind. Like we do not want other companies, you know, monetizing our own data. So sometimes that's why it's just an automatic no. And before we move on, I do just want to add an extra little note around interactivity. So interactivity, make sure that if you do have any applications that are configured for interactivity, that you do own the endpoints that they're pointing to. The last thing you'll want to do is have an attacker take over a third party dangling DNS record or an endpoint configured within a Slack application where they can now receive real time every Slack message within a specific channel or a set of channels. You can almost call that one organization assisted exfiltration. 
Now I can go on for days about the Slack stuff, but just trying to keep these episodes around 20, 25 minutes long. So I'm going to go ahead and move on to the next one. If you've got more questions around this piece, please feel free to reach out. I absolutely love it. I'm using it for about 10 years since it was in beta. All right, let's move on to the next one. The prompt. In my organization, we have a lot of service accounts. And while nobody is actively monitoring the service accounts, they do have a lot of privilege. How can we clean them up and make it better? Now, I do think that this one's a little bit of a loaded question, but this one is really deep in content. So where we'll start is why is nobody monitoring this one first? Anything out there that is not human should be monitored. The reason why is because on the human side, let's say that it's a user account. People will see something, they're going to say something. If they get, you know, there's a login from a weird uh, address or a new device, they're going to get the new device notification. If they see that there's a weird login on a website or, you know, something's reporting their um, IP address is coming from the wrong location, maybe because they're still logged into the corporate VPN and all traffic is going across the VPN, they will say something. So as long as you're building a healthy security culture where people aren't getting yelled at for reporting things to you and instead being praised for coming to you with some kind of oddity, that's where you can really use it as a learning opportunity to help build that security culture even further. Something else you hear me talk about is least privilege. When it comes to service count, least privilege is definitely the way to go. And if you're not taking the time to really understand what least privilege is for that service account, then you're part of the problem. It's also a good opportunity for you to become um, not necessarily a subject matter expert, but more familiar with whatever it is, third party tool or internal develop tool, which you have no visibility or knowledge of. You can really learn how the systems interact. You can really start to build out your documentation, your run books, your playbooks as you're working through configuring the least privilege. And then also work with your third-party risk teams to make sure that there's requirements built into the review process, uh, the integration process, and the implementation process to make sure that least privilege can be obtained with that solution. A few easy wins you can get is making sure that the service accounts can only log in from very specific IP addresses. So let's say maybe you have a build service or you have a internally developed service which is calling maybe an Okta API or a one login API and it needs to impersonate instead of using an API token. Well, you wanna make sure that it can only log in and start those logins from those IP addresses. Do not skip the MFA either. MFA is there on purpose. And if your solution does not implement MFA, it may not be the right one. I am also a proponent of password rotations on these service accounts where you don't necessarily know where they're being run from. You don't know whose hands they're changing. And as people get offboarded, they're not rotating these passwords either. So let's make sure that, you know, there's maybe a quarterly process in place for rotating the password to make sure that at least it is being rotated for some of those more timely terminations that occurred previously. Um, helps reduce some of the risk, but there's other mitigating controls that would have been in put in place like the IP restrictions, the MFA, so on and so forth. Now, with all that combined together, you want to make sure that you're doing some sort of user behavioral analysis on some of these logs. Are you seeing people try to log into this account from outside that IP address range? If so, you want to try to identify who owns that IP address. Is it from within your internal network? Is it external to the network? Because if it's external, there may be a compromise. If it's internal, okay, maybe a system's misconfigured. You want to be able to solve both of those problems where if it's compromised, password rotation should be okay. Maybe you even need to rename the account. 
if it's internal, somebody's trying to do something that wasn't agreed to, and maybe there needs to be a risk registry entry, or maybe we need to adjust the policy after we better understand how they're trying to implement it, or maybe we just need them to get it implemented correctly the way we originally designed it to be. And then lastly, um, the big thing to really call out here, which is where I think a lot of the problems with these service accounts come from is there's a lot of limitations with service accounts on the actual vendors that they're trying to be implemented with. And one of these examples I always call out is going to be Google. So, you know, if you have somebody that's trying to implement with, for example, the Google Calendar API, and you want to be able to read different people's calendars, you want to be able to write to different people's calendars, you actually really need a, a highly privileged account in the existing Google Workspace configuration. So trying to restrict it down to, you know, just using the, um, you know, www.googleapis.com auth calendar scope, which would give you the ability to see, edit, share, and permanently delete all calendars you can access using a Google calendar. Notice the, the term you. It is explicitly only permitting it for the person that is granting access via the OAuth consent screen. So if I wanted the service account to be able to do it, only the service account's calendar would be accessible via the API, not other people on the domain. So if you do domain-wide delegation and then you want to impersonate other folks, in order to get access to the other individuals in the domain, you're looking at using a highly privileged user just for this little bit of functionality. And the same pretty much holds true on the, the Google Drive side too. So let's say that you have a Google Drive file that you created and, and now you want some sort of service account and API connectivity associated with that file to maybe update rows. Let's imagine that it's a Google Sheet. The easiest way to get API functionality, but not the most secure, is just to enable either the spreadsheet scope or the drive scope, both of which will grant whatever the API client is access to all files or all spreadsheets, depending which one you used, instead of just the one that you want them to manage. A good solution here would actually be to switch it from drive and spreadsheets to just drive.file and have the API client create the file. Only files created by the API client when using drive.file become in scope and are visible to the API client. So that helps keep you know your super confidential um, financial information from being shared with these third-party API clients and keeps that reduced quite a bit. And then think about it back in the side of Slack. Okay, a lot of times you have to authenticate these Slack apps to these third-party tools like Google or um, Google Drive, Google Calendar, so you can get a little bit more interactivity between the two. Well, hey, just because you're clicking that authorize button, you may be actually sharing every document that you have shared to you in the domain with this third party who is now using Slack. So you gotta be careful with all that. And then let's move on to the last uh, prompt for the night. The prompt. You are responsible for securing a web application which contains a database, a front end, and some network transport mechanism. There are three types of users that will access the application, which include administrators, which are employees, members, and non-members. The functionality of the website allows certain users to be able to post content and others to be able to read while the administrators are able to administer the content. How do you secure it? So again, this one is very open-ended and I really enjoy this thought exercise actually quite a bit. And I'm gonna take a shortcut circling all the way back to the beginning where we talk about FCAPs. So my first thought process is gonna be how can we apply the FCAPs model to this? So the first one we're gonna think about is 
fault tolerance, right? How are we going to be keeping our backups to make sure that if there is some sort of malicious or um, malicious activity or some sort of incident that we have a way of restoring from the backups? And then also, are we testing those backups routinely? Yes or no? The answer should always be yes. How often are we testing them? What is the process to test them? Can we automate the test, uh, you know, where we're unfreezing the database backups to make sure that it's doing something the way we expect it to? And, you know, we can guess the the certain rows um, are matching against what we actually unfroze and put into the database. You know, we can do some queries, write some automated tests around that. We can get a lot of confidence and then use that in other places within the infrastructure. So that's one of the first things that sticks out. The second one is going to be, what about some of the uh, user uploaded contents, more of the things around S3? Are you going to be grabbing file hashes of every single one of the files that gets uploaded and sending them over to VirusTotal? Are we going to be doing some sort of processing on them? Are we going to be, you know, susceptible, depending on which coding language we wrote it in, to a file inclusion vulnerability? Like you see in PHP all the time related to like WordPress, where somebody can upload a file, which then gets called from the browser via, you know, a direct link or through one of the plugins. And now you have like a C2 shell into the WordPress application and you can control it from there. That brings us into the configuration piece. How is this application configured? Where's the configuration for it exist? Is it a file? Are we making sure that we're not allowing attackers to uh, modify the URLs in certain ways where we're allowing for directory traversal or path traversal vulnerabilities? That's one of the first things I'm going to be thinking about there. Because if we have like a config.yaml or a config.json file, and then the attacker can just put that into the URL bar because the root of the HTTP server is the same one where these files exist. Well, uh-oh, now they can probably see your database host name, your database password, your database username, the database name, any type of uh, table prefix, any other type of S3 tokens needed to generate the AWS connection into S3. There's a lot that goes into those files. So that's one of the other things that we're going to be wanting to look for. Additionally, that kind of brings us into the next piece. If it's environment variables, do we have debugging turned off? Certain programming languages and frameworks will have debugging enabled where environment variables will get printed out whenever there's like a, a 500 or some sort of server error. So if the attacker can, you know, manipulate a request in order to return a 500, which a lot of times isn't really that hard, if you know, you know, how to add a bunch of single quotes, double quotes, and maybe some dollar signs and percent signs in there. Well, hey, now you can see the entire environment variable. If your usernames, your passwords, um, your API keys are inside those environment variables, well, now you're going to be compromised. So being able to read some of these secrets from something like SSM or GCP directly would probably be the more preferred approach or making sure that you are disabling and turning off these pre-production or debugging or verbose logs and try to mimic some of these uh, attacker request types to make sure that if you do encounter a server error, then an attacker doesn't get access to any of these environment variables. Also on the configuration side, um, it also kind of goes into the architecture side too, is I would always make sure that there's separate entry points for the application, however we're doing it, where the consumers are using one side and the administrators are using a separate entry point. Like I'm not even talking about different route entry point. I'm talking about completely separate tool, different levels of authentication to get into it, different types of authentication, like put an Okta 
in front of that one, maybe even device trust or putting it on a network where you need VPN in order to access it. Whereas the consumers are accessing the one exposed publicly to the internet. There are going to be two different types of uh, functionality provided in both of them. And if you actually go back to episode one, we talked about the, the Twitter compromise. Um, and in the 2011 motion that was filed by the FTC, one of the things that they brought up was that Twitter actually used the same tooling for customer access and administrator access. And that was one of the things that led to the compromise. So bringing that back from history lessons learned, let's put that into effect and separate those two out. So the same thing doesn't happen to us in the future on the database configuration piece. I'd want to make sure that we're um, listening to a local socket instead of over TCP or UDP. Um, what that does is that takes it off the network and stops it from being, you know, maybe there's an NMAP scan or maybe we messed up our firewall configuration and, you know, we're not blocking 3306 or 5432. Um, and as a result, an attacker can get access to try to brute force or if they did get access to your name and password, they'd be able to access it via the network. Moving to a um, local socket, Unix socket, would allow us to make sure that they're only being able to access from the local service that's being run. It does require a little bit of extra configuration, but the security benefits are much higher. Now let's jump over to accountability. On the accountability side, we want to make sure that we know who is doing what, when, and how within the system. And in some places we may not want to record all the information because there's some privacy concerns as a result of it. So let's try to bake that into our solution from the start. So that's where the term tokenization is going to come into play here. And we may have a way of taking the, an IP address or an email address. If we don't want it to be stored in like plain text somewhere or accessible via the consumer's website or the administrator website, we can actually take maybe like a token and store it within our own database while having a third party processor upstream. If like, let's say we're doing payments of some sort, or if there's a, a larger integration with some sort of third party storage piece, that's where that the actual information will be stored that the token points to that way. There's no cross pollination within our data set that if our database gets dumped, the token and the map of what the token points to is compromised. That sort of defeats the purpose. And it's not just for who did what and when uh, on the consumer side, but also on the employee side. The other part is tying admin access down to that least privilege piece as well. So, you know, you don't need somebody from sales and marketing to have access to the raw database. Instead, what you want to do is you want to sanitize and anonymize some of these reports and give them access to that so they can see the trends. They don't necessarily need to see the individual people. And if they do, make sure that that's in your privacy policy that we can access the information and reach out to you for some sort of interaction, um, you know, maybe following up on some sort of campaign, whether it's, you know, on the marketing side or the support side or what have you. Just remember that customers should never be surprised with how you're using the data. Make sure it's always spelled out, regardless if they read the privacy policy in the terms of service or not, should always be reflected to be true. So if you say you're deleting records after a certain amount of time, make sure you're actually doing it. And then even further, we want to know who's doing what in the database at what point in time. So who's logging in, make sure we're collecting those. Um, and then also on the code side, do we have the audit trail of the commits that are going into the deployment? Do we know who deployed what code at what time as well? That gives us one big complete picture from end to end 
from that feature getting written to getting deployed to the changes going into the database to a consumer making a change on a website to an administrator making a change on a website. Remember, attackers think in graphs and so do auditors. So this is one of the ways that we can start to build that whole piece out and make sure that we have each piece covered completely with an audit trail. Next up is performance. And this one I like to think of is a few different things. How did we design the application? And then why are we distributing it across multiple regions or in multiple um, maybe ISP cloud providers? And what are some of the struggles that kind of come along with that? So how are we securing the traffic in the first place? We're going to be using TLS. We're not going to be allowing people to talk directly to, you know, our port 8080, you know, on the web. It's going to be tied off with a firewall rule. And we're going to make sure that they're going through 443 and maybe we put a load balancer in front of it. Are we monitoring that load balancer for vulnerabilities? Can we make sure that they can't get to one of the internal points, especially if that admin interface and that user interface are both pointing to the same ALB? Uh, if you're using Amazon, that's something you want to make sure you're on top of. Have a topology in place. Make sure it's architected and designed out and everybody can have this piece to reference whenever they need it. Did we implement a cache? If you have people accessing your website from many different places, caching mechanisms usually come into play to help store and deliver that information closer to your end users than your actual backend logic um, that's, that's actually happening and processing the data. So there's a few issues that could come up with cache, um, such as cache poisoning. And one of the most effective things here to make sure that you're doing is not including libraries off of third-party websites. Make sure you're hosting all those source files for your JavaScript, your CSS, your images and all that on your domain in your own cache. Also make sure that you're limiting as much as possible how many tracking pixels and ad managers or like things like Google Tag Manager from being included on your site. Every one of those that is being called from the client is possibly impacting and affecting the client's performance because it's more network requests that physically need to happen. And there's a security risk of the third party being compromised and then delivering malicious assets to the end user, causing their websites to redirect to some attacker controlled web page. This can lead to credential harvesting, phishing, or, you know, delivery of a, an additional malicious payload to the endpoint through like downloading of a file or execution of arbitrary code, depending on how the website or the client was written. Now, the best part of this is if you go back and you listen to the, this last little prompt, security is not an afterthought. Every one of those pieces of the FCAPS model that we thought of, even though security is the last part, that's S and FCAPS, we thought about it right up front. So you as a developer, you as an engineer, you as an end user should be thinking the same concepts, right? Security is not an afterthought. It should always be baked into everything you're doing. Think about it right from the start. But let's leave S as security and, and let's go through this exercise in completeness. So back in the, the telco days, we actually used these systems called triple A's. They were responsible for authentication, authorization, and accounting. So is this person who they say they are, which is the authentication? And then do they have access to this resource, which is the authorization? Lastly, how long did it take them to do certain things? And let's keep account of whatever it was that they were actually doing on the telco side. That's making sure that we're keeping track of how much data they're sending back and forth so we can bill them accordingly. But here we want to make sure that we're authenticating our users correctly and that we're limiting what they actually have access to once they're added. So this is where we're going to be really making sure that we're taking care of those IDORs and the rest of the OWASP top tens when it comes to authentication and authorization. So an IDOR is where you're looking at a web page and there's a bunch of slashes in the URL 
and maybe there's like a slash one. Well, if I'm the user, that is the first user and that's my user ID, I should be able to access that page. But if two belongs to my next door neighbor, I should not be able to access their record and they should not be able to access mine. If we're not validating ownership around that data entity to the user that's actually accessing it, there's going to be a problem. So that's one of the things that we want to be able to try to tie down and, and button off with that authorization um, that comes after the authentication. And again, authentication is making sure that person is who they say they are. So how are we going to authenticate it? Are we going to tie it in with a SSO, um, like our IDP with Okta and one login again as examples, or with Google social networks or Facebooks or, you know, one of those, or do we want to bake our own and have username and passwords directly in our site where somebody's logging in? If that's the case, are we going to use something like bcrypt in order to encrypt the password to make sure we never store it plain text within our database? Because we definitely don't want to do that. And if that's the case, then, you know, how many iterations are we going to do um, for the cost around bcrypt to make sure that, you know, an attacker, we can slow them down a little bit. We're going to take it even further. And on the authorization side, what type of model are we going to use? If we're going to be implementing a authorization um, and a resource server following the OAuth standard, uh, think of it that way. Do we need to build our own scopes? Because remember, we have two types of users we need to be thinking about. One of them is going to be the um, members, and one of them is going to be the non-members. So think of non-members as non-privileged. They can't see anything. Um, they Well, they can't write anything. They can't contribute anything. But maybe they can see, because what else is the point of being a non-member? Uh, maybe think of that as like your Google crawler or somebody coming to your web page. They're not logged in, um, like a Twitter or something like that. Um, and what is their experience going to be? You want to think about the user experience because maybe that's an opportunity for you to convert them to a member and maybe there's a subscription fee associated with that. So you don't want to necessarily just say you're not a member, you can't get access to anything. You got to be a little bit more logical than that. And then on the other side, you want to think about the members. Do they only have access to what they should have access to, meaning their own supplied content? Or if maybe you have somebody like a moderator, how do you limit them down to only their area that they can continue to moderate if it's this type of application? So there's a lot of areas that we can start to kind of explore and expand into, not saying that they're all perfect, not saying that there's a solution for every single one of them yet, but this is how you want to start thinking about the bigger picture. And when in doubt, I usually just take Dwight Schrute's advice. Whenever I'm about to do something, I think, would an idiot do that? And if they would, I do not do that thing. And with that, I really do appreciate you tuning in here. Uh, this is a big conversation starter. So not saying everything here is perfect. You know, it's really late. You know, I spent up a lot of time trying to pack a few of these podcasts together for the next couple of weeks because I'll be traveling. But, um, you know, for the big part is continue this conversation. Let me know if this is helpful. Um, if there's any other prompts, we can always work through them in the future. Uh, if you want to get a little bit more specific into some of the details of some of these SaaS services, we could always do that too. So again, thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, this is a little bit more on the longer side, but I really did want to try to fit all this content in here because uh, it's a lot of stuff I get questions about all the time. And with that, thanks for tuning in to this episode of Plan B Security with me, Mike McIntosh. <laughs>